Okay, so we're going to read from God's Word. And uh, we're actually reading two readings this morning, okay? So um, if you've got a Bible on you, you're going to need it. And when I say this in a minute, you're going to shudder, right? First we're reading from Acts, and the, or no, from Joel, and then we're reading from Acts, right? So, sorry, I apologize, but, you know, we're dipping back into Acts, having been there for a year. And I know I told you we finished last week, and it turns out that we're dropping straight back in the week after. But... Joel. Turn to Joel chapter 2, and then we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, okay? So this is Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And then we're going to jump across to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we thank God for his word that speaks to us today. So I know I promised that we were done 
And it turns out we're not done. We're back in Acts just a week after we said we were done. But go with me, okay? We're here today uh, because last week was Pentecost Sunday. We were lots of us away. Thank you to the 50 or 60 of you over the last week that were at Nua last weekend to join with us in the wider church. We had an incredible weekend. But one of the features of that was the sense of being together on Pentecost Sunday. People from lots of different traditions and parts of the church, different denominational backgrounds, all sorts of people together on the day that we gather to celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. The day that we, the church, we gather to celebrate that and and its implications, which would be the birth of the church. And there's this kind of nature with Pentecost where it's this one-time event, but it has this ongoing implications. And maybe because of that, I, I feel very often that Pentecost is kind of the Christian festival that we most don't know what to do with it, right? Like we know what to do with Easter. We know what to do with Christmas. We know what to do with Lent. But there's something about Pentecost that always feels a bit like, oh, I don't, don't really know where to put it. And this series is really about exploring about what the Pentecost might mean for you and for I, for us here. I don't think I've ever mentioned it before. Definitely I haven't mentioned it in at least 25 other sermons, but I'm a gifts person, right? Ideally expensive things, right? I'm a gift. I don't think I've also ever mentioned that my birthday is also in July. You wonderful, generous church. Jokes, right? Gifts, right? I'm a gifts person. Some of you in the room will be, there's no shame in that, right? I know you're non-gifts relatives that make you think, you know, that you're really fickle, just, you know, type person. You're not gifts people. You're wonderful, right? But gifts, right? Some of you will be. And the thing about gifts is that I think just about everybody can recount great gifts that you've received in your life, right? When you think about the gifts that people have given you, okay, most of you can think about the good ones, right? There's like the thoughtful ones, right? The gifts that really display people's kind of knowledge of you, like they really kind of know you. You know, those gifts that when you get it, you're like, I feel seen, right? Like people get me. Or kind of the practical gifts, right? It doesn't sound, you know, there's nothing particularly attractive about practical gifts, but the sorts of gifts that you reach your hand in your pocket every day and you use something that somebody gave you and it points you along the way, you'll reflect on, do you know what? That was a really great gift. I use it all the time. There's the extravagant gifts, right? Whenever somebody gets you the sort of gift that you would never buy for yourself, right? Or maybe just the outright apple of your eye gift, right? If you're like me and you're a gifts person and you're surrounded by people who aren't gifts persons, what you do is you make up an extensive list at all sorts of budgets and you send it through, including lengths and size and color so that they can't possibly get it wrong, right? Those sorts of gifts, right? Maybe that. Normally, it's pretty easy to think about the best gifts you've received. It's also normally quite easy to think about the worst gifts you've ever received. Tenth birthday party, uh, a shoot football magazine, which had clearly already been read. Not only that, but they'd stripped the stickers that were meant to come with the magazine, and I didn't even get the stickers, right? I'm not over it, right? It's fine. I'm not over it, though, right? The best gifts and the worst. You can normally think about them. But sometimes... Sometimes in life, there are the gifts that you just never could have expected. And in a sense, that is Pentecost. When you think about Pentecost, in a sense, it is the gift that you could never have expected. We know from Acts 1 
that Jesus' last words to his disciples were the promise of the Holy Spirit and with the Spirit power. You remember those lines, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, right? That was the promise. And so we know in Acts 1 and in Acts 2, they were together, they were praying, they were seeking, and the reality of those prayers is that it's very likely that they were probably praying for the power that they were promised, right? And yet when the day of Pentecost comes, it's wind, it's tongues of fire, and perhaps most startling of all, it's language. This isn't what they expected, right? They expected some sort of power, something that would like blow through everyone, that would do something. But actually what they get is language. And yet that language was central to it all. It was language that was the sound of intimacy, language which spoke to every nation as if to say to them, come and belong. Come and be part of what I'm doing. Come and see. Come and be a part of this. Nothing would speak of this love, this new way of Jesus more profoundly than it being communicated to the world in languages that they understood. They prayed for power, but what they got was language. And so as John Stott says, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without spirit is dead. Pentecost, the day that everything changed. The day that they prayed for one thing, but they got the gift that they couldn't have imagined. And so the first thing we're going to look at in the context of this series that we're going to be in over the next number of weeks, where we're looking at kind of the Holy Spirit and what it means for us, the first thing we're going to look at is that the Holy Spirit is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. But what does that mean for us? Much like those people who gathered on Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost that said, like, what does all this mean? What is going on? That's where we find ourselves today asking, what does the gift of God mean to us today? Well, the heart of what Peter said on that day was from the prophet Joel in that passage from Joel 2. Joel's kind of a tricky book, okay, to place in terms of context. Normally when you get up and you look at a book and you try to kind of figure out what it's saying, right? You're trying to translate what was said then to how it might apply to us now, what the, the prophet meant to say to who he was speaking it to. That's kind of hard in, in the case of Joel because it potentially could have been written in a period as long as 600 years. And a lot happens in 600 years, right? So it's hard to place in terms of time, but what we do know is that in the book, this northern invader, that it talks about it again and again, right? It looms large in the writing, and there's this recurring theme of a swarm of locusts, like again and again throughout the book, the devastation that's going to be caused to God's people when the swarm comes. Because of all of this, uh, what it means is that when you read Joel, what looms largest is not the prophet, but God himself. And perhaps for this reason, David Pryor, a Bible commentator, he says this, in proportion to its length, the book of Joel arguably had more impact on the writers of the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. Joel 2 that we read from and Joel 3 are key in the language and understanding of the early church for what Jesus had done and what Jesus would yet do. And Joel 2 that we're reading from today in particular is essential for our understanding of what the coming of the Spirit might mean. In short, it's a deeply influential little book. And so on that date, as the Spirit comes and this is kind of chaos in Acts 2 of wind and flames and language, this is what Peter chooses to quote, right? 
Like he chooses to go right back into this prophetic work from hundreds of years before. And, and it's as if he's saying, see all of this, right? All of the beauty, the wonder, the chaos of what's going on. This is that. This that you're experiencing today, this is that. This is this prophecy that the, the prophet Joel spoke out hundreds of years before. This is that. This is the gift of God. And so today I want to just explore what that gift might mean for us and how it might play out. Because I think the prophet Joel, when he spoke, and Peter, as he told them and tried to explain what was happening with it, he's saying that the gift plays out in sight and signs and salvation. And the first of those is sight. The gift, first of all, is sight. I wanted you to go back with me to 2009, right? In 2009, it's the first time I properly met my wife, Joy, right? We've been doing the whole Facebook, yeah, we met on Facebook, right? So we've been doing the Facebook chat thing, right? We're like chatting away. Sooner or later, you got to like actually meet to find out that it's a real human being. And it's not like, you know, some 45-year-old man who's been talking to me the whole time, right? So it's like we meet, okay? And, and Joy and I meet in Belfast City Center to go for a coffee, okay? And Joy, as she arrives, is wearing the worst, the most dreadful pair of tartan tights you've ever seen in your entire life, right? And when she arrives to meet me, her first words out of her mouth were that she announces she's just spilled a Coke float all over them too. Who has a Coke float, right? Anyway, she spilled a Coke float all over them. So this is an interesting start to like a first date, right? So uh, anyway, we're like walking. And as we're walking through the city center, Joy stands on an uneven, uneven paving slab. And what happens next is what I can only describe as a jet of muddy water goes straight up the inside of her legs, right? The, the tights are now toast, right? Mercifully, it's the end of the road for the tights, right? The Coke float and the jet of water did it, right? That was the end, okay? And the thing is, right, I had never noticed an uneven paving slab before in my life, right? I, I mean, I'd never walked around town, look out for the paving slabs, lads, right? Like, I'd never thought of it, right? But since that day, and I walk through Belfast like just about every day now, I'm like, I'm on red alert for uneven paving slabs, okay? It's like that thing that I'd never seen before. And now I see it all the time. And we all have this habit of behaving like that a bit, don't we? Like some of you have had a bad experience with like a dog at some point. Maybe a dog has barked at you angrily or you got nipped when you were a child. And for most of the rest of you, you walk around town, you don't notice dogs anywhere. But those of you that have had the bad experience, all you see are the dogs that are walking around. Or when my friend died, I, I would kind of see that what I thought was his car everywhere I went. Like I'd never noticed the car before, but now everywhere I went, I'm like, that's his car. And it would like drive past and obviously it wasn't. Or you get scammed via email once and now you're constantly on red alert for email scams. Once you never noticed, now it's all you see. And it's the same life, isn't it? The same eyes, but now you see things differently. And the gift of God is in part sight. This is what it says in Joel 2, 28 and 29. Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The first thing about the gift is that it's poured out, okay? We've got to kind of get that, right? That's significant because it tells you about the nature of this gift. 
In the case of Joel, he'd use the same phrase just before in Joel 2, 13. He'd use it to describe the downpour of abundant rain. And it's exactly the same thing, right? It's like that. This is a downpour. For the Spirit to be poured out, okay? It illustrates, number one, the generosity of the gift, right? It's not a drizzle or a drop. That's, that which is poured out, it's, it's massively generous, right? It's OTT. It, 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 it also demonstrates the finality of the gift. Those of you that have ever spilled like a carton of milk before that like will know that once it gets out of the bottle, you can't gather it back in, right? That which is poured out can't be gathered up again. And also the universality of it. Everyone is on the receiving end. And to Peter in the moments, after all that has just unfolded before him on the day of Pentecost, right? It's easy to see that these lines from Joel's prophecy are the only way, the only thing he can think of in his head to explain all that he's seeing with his eyes. And there's this shift going on, right? You see, in in the Old Testament, when there's a mention of the work of the Spirit, okay, the general theme is that the Spirit comes on specific individuals for specific things, right? In other words, if you received the Spirit, God had a job for you. It was kind of the mark of leadership in the Old Testament. They were being empowered for something significant that the Lord had for them. That's kind of what happens every time it's mentioned in the Old Testament. So in the early church, when they recounted the words of Joel and people like him, There was this experience, this expectation that the Spirit coming on individuals was for some expression of leadership in the people of God. But now, everything changes. This is the gift of God. And all of that has been turned on its head. It's not coming anymore on specific people for specific purpose, for leadership amongst the people of God. It's coming on everyone. It's coming generously. And it's coming for good. This is how Peter recounts it. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And he adds this, they will prophesy. Young and old, female and male, free and slave. There is no distinction in what God is doing. Just as a like, you know, a little side on that. Female slaves, that was like as low as it went in the culture of the day. Female slaves are like the lowest of the low. Normally if you were a slave, it's because your people have been conquered at some point or maybe you've been sold into slavery one way or another. You're at the bottom. You're, you're like the bottom rung of the ladder. And female slaves were less useful than male slaves. And so female slaves were like as low as it goes. That is low status. As one ancient daybreak prayer recorded of a Jewish meal shows, this is what it says, I thank God that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now here is Joel speaking. And he's saying you could be all three of those things. And the gift of God comes for you, the same as it comes for anyone else. This is a new world order where the gift of God, God's best, comes. And there is no social distinction. There is only spiritual conditions. You want to know what those are? They're pretty simple. In Joel, the condition was this. It says again and again in Joel, return to me, return to me, return to me. 
And in Acts, the condition was repent and be baptized. In other words, turn to me. You want to receive? Return to me. You want to receive? Turn to me. And at the heart of what the gift was going to do is what Peter says in verse 18, they will prophesy. That word prophecy, right? We know from both Joel and from when Peter quotes it, we, we hear those words, dreams and vision and prophecy, okay? What, what we need to understand is that they're more or less, they, they all kind of account for the same thing, right? We're not going to get into the absolute specifics of dreams and visions and prophecy, right? But generally speaking, they are the same thing. They are all a bona fide way that God communicated with his people through his people, right? They're all the same, really. And you know, that's an interesting term when we think about prophecy, especially for someone like Joel. Because throughout the Old Testament, prophets like Joel, they were in operation, okay? We know that, obviously. They tended to move around a lot. They tended to have an uneasy relationship with people who were in authority, kings, people like that. They were often actually quite abrasive people. Like when we think of modern day prophetic people, you know, we think of those really super spiritual, don't we? Like those kind of airy fairy people that wear purple and, you know, are kind of in the corner of the room, right? We think of them like that. In the Old Testament, prophets were like really abrasive people. They said bold things hard things to people in authority again and again and again. But their role, their role was to speak the words that God gave to them. And throughout the Old Testament, when a prophet speaks, okay, the general theme is that before they speak, they will start with one of two phrases, okay? Like 99 times out of 100, one of two phrases is used before they speak. And they are these, thus says the Lord, or... The word of the Lord came to. And I say that today because the literal translation of the word of the Lord came to is this. Became a reality to. Here's the thing. Peter talks about prophecy. This is us, right? I will pour out my spirit in those days. They will be the ones that I became a reality to. We are the ones that through this gift, we have this new way, this, we live this new order, have this way of seeing our lives and our stuff and this world with new sight because Jesus, his life and his way have become a reality to us. It's not just knowing that the gift of the Spirit came. It's understanding how to live in this new reality, to become the people who live because in a new way, because this new way has become a reality to us. Eugene Peterson in his book, The Pastor, he says it better than I ever could. This is what he says. To live in the light of the Pentecost is the lived conviction that everything, absolutely everything in the scriptures is livable. Not just true, but livable. Not just an idea or a cause, but livable in real life. Everything that is revealed in Jesus and the scriptures, the gospel, is there to be lived by ordinary Christians in ordinary times. This is the supernatural core, a lived resurrection and the Holy Spirit core of the Christian life, what Karl Barth expressed dialectically as the impossible possibility. I love that. This is the gift. And it comes to those on the outside. 
It comes to those on the fringes. It comes to those who think themselves not worthy. It comes to those who have wandered off and feel far off, to those who feel they aren't inside. There are no distinctions. And it's the gift of seeing our lives, our world, and our stuff with impossible possibility. The first outworking of the gift is sight. The second is signs. Signs. We read on in Joel 2, 30 and 31. I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so there are signs. Just like any change that's coming, like the seasons or whatever, there's nearly always signs before the change comes. And at Pentecost, those signs which had amazed and astonished and stirred, right? They were the sound of wind. They were tongues of flame. They were languages, weren't they? And yet there's this sense as Peter speaks and as he tries to draw them into the words of Joel that the focus isn't on the sensory, right? He's trying to say, like, don't get preoccupied with the sensory. You need to understand the significance. Because in Joel's prophecy, the signs were really pretty different, weren't they? Blood and fire, billows of smoke and darkness, right? And reading those from the outside, you're thinking, well, that can't be good, right? Blood and fire and billows of smoke, I mean, that doesn't sound great. I'm not listening to those going, you know, thank you. I'm really looking forward to that, right? It sounds ominous, doesn't it? But these were actually images for the listeners at the time that would have, like, drawn their imaginations back to the Exodus, okay? When you think about the Exodus, uh, Moses, all of that sort of stuff, okay? The blood above the doors at the Passover that meant they were kept safe. The pillar of fire that led God's people through the wilderness. The smoke or the vapor which shrouded the mountain as Moses descended down with the tablets of the law. You see, they sound ominous to us. But actually, these were reassuring images for God's people. Because these were the signs, these were the reminders of that reality of a holy God who was present with his people. And so too, actually, was darkness. It doesn't sound it, but it is, okay? If you think back to the Exodus, right? Kind of one of the big features in that part of time was the plagues, wasn't it? When you think about all that happened to kind of get God's people out of Egypt and the Pharaoh and all that stuff, it was the plagues. And when the plagues came upon Egypt, one of the most terrifying plagues for the Pharaoh himself was darkness, okay? You're thinking like amongst the other things, like, I mean, I'm not good with locusts, right? But like darkness was an absolutely terrifying plague for the Pharaoh. Why, right? Because their greatest God, the one that they held up higher than anybody else was the sun god Ra, okay? If you go to Egypt, there's like imagery all around Egypt because they worship the sun god Ra. Now there's a whole kind of background to what happened in the, in the day, you know, in light and dark and like battling demons in the underworld when it was dark and all of this sort of stuff. But the, basically the long and short of it is was the sun rose every day. And because the sun, I mean, it's Egypt too, so it's pretty sunny and it's pretty hot. And so as the sun comes up every day, they're reminded that this God that they worship is really great and really strong, right? There's not an awful lot of forces greater than the sun, particularly in the desert, okay? So they're thinking that the power of this God is linked to the strength of the sun, Right? And so what happens if you worship a God who is the sun and the sun doesn't come up again? You're terrified, right? This power which is so constant, so consistent, all of a sudden stops. And you're terrified. And it was as if Yahweh was communicating to a culture that the gods that you worship, 
the stuff that you think is in control, it's not. I am. I am. And so even Jesus, whenever he's speaking in Matthew 24, he uses the same imagery of darkness and, and uh, the moon and all of that stuff to kind of communicate the coming of the Son of Man, the title he liked to refer to himself most as, right? He says the same thing. In other words, these were the signs of God's faithfulness, his greatness and his control, the signs of our freedom from every other thing that may lay claim to our lives, the sign that the stuff that we let take a hold of us is not all there is. The gods of money and work and status and control, control, control are not all there is. The gift of the Spirit was the sign that there is more available to you and to I. You know, one of the repeat themes throughout the book of Joel is this phrase, the day of the Lord. If you ever buy a commentary on Joel, it will usually say this inside the first paragraph, right? That the day of the Lord is one of the big themes of this book, okay? And it actually appears in verse 31, which we read. And each time it's used, okay, one commentator suggests it's used to refer to the controlling events from Yahweh in an unusually direct way. In other words, every time it's used, it's used to communicate the signs that God is breaking in. That things don't have to be this way. That the stuff you're carrying around is not all there is. That you don't have to live this way. That things don't have to go on this way. That you don't have to live the way the world tells you you should. The gift of the Spirit is the sign that God is breaking in. You know, when we look at the Pentecost, as we did last week, and as we're in this season of Pentecost, okay, we can't use the one-off nature of it all to let us off with living life with a very low expectation of what God can do. Because that's the temptation, isn't it? It's like that word revival that we use in kind of evangelical circles, right? It's like way out there somewhere, you know, we're just longing for revival. But in the meantime, we'll just kind of settle for nothing happening, right? And it's like we look at the Pentecost and see the stuff that happened and go, well, that was kind of a one-time thing. That's, I mean, this stuff's never going to happen again. So we don't seek it. We don't long for it. We don't expect it. So we walk around with a low expectation of what God might do and how God might speak and what might happen in our lives. Here's the thing. The wind wasn't normal. The tongues of fire, they weren't normal either. The languages, yep, yeah, they probably weren't normal. But the new life and the joy the fellowship and the worship, the freedom, the boldness and the power, those are all normal and they are all available to us. Again, Peterson, sorry, I've quoted him twice in a day, right? Peterson would write this. We see what is possible. Anyone and everyone is able to live a zestful life that spills out of the stereotype containers that a sin-inhibited society provides. Such lives fuse spontaneity and purpose and green the desiccated landscape with meaning. And we see how it is possible by plunging into a life of faith, participating in what God initiates in each life, exploring what God is doing in each event. The persons we meet on the pages of scripture are remarkable for the intensity with which they live Godward. The thoroughness in which all the details of their lives are included in God's word to them and God's action in them. It is these persons 
who are most conscious of participating in what God is saying and doing that are most human and most alive. Jesus, make us most human and most alive. This is the sign that we need not live life with a low expectation because God has broken in. Pentecost was about, was about sight, it was about signs, and finally it was about salvation. This is what it says in Acts 2 and 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, a number of years ago, I went to speak at a conference. I was doing a seminar slot. And I got there a bit earlier than the slot was on, got my like, laptop set up, did all the stuff to get ready to do the seminar slot. And slowly the room, the room starts to fill up. By the time we kind of get ready for seminar time, there's like about 100 people there. And very kindly, the conference had given like each seminar, like a seminar host, okay? So this person I've, I've never met before arrives. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, I'm doing great. Do you mind if I just introduce you? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, no problem. You go for it. So I kind of stand back at the back of the room uh, and he comes forward. He said, okay, you know, great. Thanks so much for coming today. I want to welcome you to today's seminar. It's our really great joy to have John Dickinson with us today. John is the minister at Carn Money. And at this point, it's like he can see what happened happening, what's just happened in here right now, right? He can see the people are going, that's not right. And he's like, he begins to look at me, right? He's like doing, he must have it all written down. So he's like doing this thing and he's looking at me and I'm going like, like sort of doing this face, right? And he kind of eventually kind of stops and just like sort of hands me the microphone, right? Like defeated. He just hands it to me and goes like, well, you can pick up the pieces from this mess. And I get up and the first thing I say is, you know, to those of you who came to hear John today, I'm really sorry. It appears they booked the wrong Dickinson, Right. And the thing is, I say that today, okay, because I now make sure whenever I go that they've booked Dave and not John, just so you know, okay. And I say that because the prophecy of Joel, which Peter quotes, he quotes it to the crowd at the day of Pentecost about the gift of the Spirit, the significance of its coming, how it'll change everything, right? And it's incredible, isn't it? That prophecy is absolutely incredible. But here's the thing, it's just the introduction, It's just the introduction. One commentator would say this, Jesus of Nazareth is the history foretold in Joel. This incredible prophecy, this stuff which has so influenced the early church, right? It's really just the introduction. This gift, the life-changing significance of it all, it's all really the introduction to him. And as if to emphasize that, okay, when you read Acts 2, verses 14 to 21, they work their way through Joel's prophecy, okay? And then the very next line when Peter stops stops working his way through the prophecy is this. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And we don't need to say anything else, do we? This prophecy, this incredible prophecy, this gift that's just been poured out, the only way I can understand this is this prophecy, right? And this everything that you've just read, men of Israel, hear out loud, Jesus of Nazareth. That day is here, and this day is really pointing you all to him. And so in the Acts 2 account, 
Peter then continues to speak after all of the chaos of the Spirit's coming and he tries to interpret it through Joel's words and then he unpacks how that connects with this Jesus of Nazareth that he's just said. John Stott would write the shorthand version like this. He who was born into our humanity, lived our life, died for our sins, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, now sent his Spirit to his people to constitute them his body and to work out in them what he had won for them. The gift of the Spirit in its truest, fullest, most significant form is not the sight or the signs, it's salvation. It's Jesus himself. It's to work out in you and I what he has done in you and I. To work out in you and I the God's best that he gave, the incredible gift. It's to work out God's best in your life. And he is the gift available to you, whoever you are, wherever you're at. Speaking later in the passage, Peter will say this, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And on that day, 3,000 people responded. 3,000 who felt far off. Who knows what their backgrounds were? Who knows what kind of makeup they were in terms of societal, in terms of religious, in terms of status? Who knows? 3,000 of them saw the stuff that was going on. They heard the understanding from Joel. They heard Peter say, all this stuff, well, this is that. And by the way, that is all about Jesus of Nazareth. Let me tell you about him. And 3,000 of them responded. The thing is, what about you today? Do you need to receive him today? Do you need Jesus today? Do you need the Spirit to work out his life and purpose in you today? He is the gift. He is our gift. And Pentecost brings him to life in us and enables him to work out his life in us. Pentecost had been a whirlwind, right? Especially if you're one of those disciples that day, you're like, hold on, what is all this, right? You're dazed and confused, probably. Asked to explain and understand it all, Peter had got to his feet on that day in Acts 2, and he tried to help them make sense of it all. And it had been the words of Joel that had been first in his mind. But the truth is, with all that stuff going on around him, most like you or I, he was probably off the cuff in it, right? It was probably like... Where do I go with this? I know, Joel, that makes sense of it, right? Let's, let's teach into that today. That's probably what happened on that day. But a little while later, when he had time to catch his breath and reflect on it all, Peter would write about what had happened here and what this gift would mean and what it meant. And among Peter too, he'd write this. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had received, not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what the gift was for. Coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is first gift the gift of sight, that we might see our lives in another reality, that our lives might be marked with a way of seeing stuff through the lens of an impossible 
possibility. That it was second signs that we might live in the expectations of life with God, not just the control of our world and our resources and our own limitations and how everyone else lives. That we might live with a whole other expectation around our lives. And finally, it is salvation. That we might come to know, really know, that the gift is really Him. And that as the Spirit is poured out on us, that it is that Spirit's work in us to work out that life that we have with Him.